Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Professor Bowder with us right now, Willem Bowder of Citigroup, and of course, our chief uh, economist. Willem, uh, the emotion of last week of all sorts of people saying this is tax legislation for the donor class. Martin Feldstein of Harvard really pushed back against that. He feels there's some uh, real benefits to what's been proposed so far. Do you study or is it in the textbooks, this idea of trickle-down economics? Is it a valid economic thing that it's going to trickle down and create jobs for America? Uh, well, there are uh, tax measures, especially corporate tax measures, that uh, if properly implemented would boost capital expenditure and so uh, boost jobs and real wages. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this particular uh, set of actions, uh, the cut in the corporate tax, uh, in a world in which you're also moving to a full expensing of capital expenditure, uh, economic theory tells you that the corporate tax cut itself is pure distribution. It will have zero impact on uh, investment, capital intensity of production, and real wages. The move towards completing uh, the full expansion uh, program, that will boost uh, capital expenditure. But the tax cut itself is uh, of no significance from the point of view of uh, of boosting uh, mm. boosting capital expenditure. There are other measures, of course, personal income tax uh, cuts, but also painful things like the uh, uh, reduction or abolition of, um, uh, of salt. Uh, so it is a very mixed package. Uh, I would uh, you know, not give it particularly high marks. Willem, do you see a US labour market that's anywhere near full employment? No, not yet. Simply because uh, the labour force participation rate, even age-adjusted, uh, you know, has still got uh, quite a bit uh, further to go. And remember, the historical age corrections for labour force participation that we made are getting out of date. I mean, look at Japan, where, uh, of course, an extreme demographic situation, we're very old, yeah. you know, now working into their 70s. And so I think there is still a significant slack in the, in, in the labor market. So I wouldn't expect any uh, uh, no, material upward pressure on unit labor costs over the next few so, years. So, Willem, we've spent the last few years trying to work out where the Nairu rate actually is on unemployment. Some people thought it was in the fours. They thought it was in the fives before that. And now they're thinking it's in the threes. Where is it? Well, I have absolutely uh, no idea. All I know is that the unemployment metric you're, losing, you're looking at, uh, since it doesn't you know, control for labor force participation, activity <clears throat> and activity, yeah. is really completely uninformative. So let's look at U6 or some broader measures uh, that allow for the fact that a lot right. of uh, marginally detached or even seriously detached workers can be reabsorbed, dragged back into the labor force. Within this is the debate of six months ago, which is many economists will suggest we've seen a nice transference of part-time labor over to full-time hmm. jobs. Uh, a lot of people say that. John and I get a lot of mail that says, uh, maybe not. Is it part-time America still? No, there have been uh, has been an increase in full time jobs as well. 
Uh, I don't think there has been a huge reduction in part-time jobs, but there has been mm-hmm. uh, no movement of people from no work into part-time work and from part-time work into full-time work. So undoubtedly, the labor market is imp- right. improving. But of course, a lot of these marginally attached workers that are now working full-time or just re-enter the labor force have low productivity. And so that's why the productivity data imp- are, uh, right. are rather disappointing. Uh, who should be vice chairman of the Fed? Just one final question. Stan Fisher did such a informed job. Do you have a name that you think fits with Chairman Powell? Well, it better be a a, a first-rate uh, applied monetary economist, right? Because at the moment, between Qualls and Powell, we have two lawyers, uh, you know, on the on the on the see board. See the tone of that, John. Um, see the, and, uh, see the, the Dutch uh, comes uh, through and, there. That, if only that, they could have seen his face as he said it. And that worries me when it comes to uh, right. you know, uh, monetary and financial disruption. Okay. Uh, I, so I don't know. Okay. I, uh, just anybody with an IQ in triple digits right. and uh, a good training <laughs> John, in economics. One final question, John. Why do the Orange play so well in the World Cup where the English can't get it together? Um, I don't is know, there, but they're not in the World Cup this year, next the year. Netherlands the Netherlands isn't? The Netherlands is not Really? Made. I did not know it's that. We, we should be talking to Willem about that. What happened, Willem? Uh, well, the Netherlands, the whole is... Much less than the sum of the parts. We have a team. <laughs> we have a team of prima donnas who so don't true. play together. So it's very just, good. It's shocking. It's, it is. Well, we'll have to have you back for that one at the World <laughs> Cup. Phil and Bowder, thank you so much. I, if I maybe won't come back because I brought that up. <laughs> September 7th of 2017, one of the three or four most important papers of the year for America, for our politicians in Washington, and certainly for a part of America flat on their back. Alan Kruger of Princeton and the opioid heroin epidemic and what it means for labor. What's the heart of your redo of your important 2016 research? Well, I followed up on men who were out of the labor force. I asked them if they took pain medication, what type of pain medication they took. And the numbers are just shocking, Tom. Um, If you look at men aged 25 to 54 who are not working, not looking for work, about half of them take pain medication on any given day. And then if I ask, is it prescription medication, Uh, a third of them say yes, uh, they took prescription pain medication on the previous day, and I have to think there's underreporting. So this is a problem that's run into yeah. uh, our labor force problems. You have sat in the Oval Office amid tough decisions. The two reigning theologies on opioid heroin is grow up, stop taking the pills, go get a job. And the other side is, woe is me, this is a horrific medical disaster, let's spend a gajillion dollars. The reality is different. What's the Kruger reality to solve this American problem? First of all, I think the problem started because of our medical practices. And slowly we're getting a handle on that, but too slowly. Uh, The U.S. prescribes far more opioid medication than the rest of the world. Americans consume 85% of opioid drugs um, and make up 5% of the world's population. So there's something totally out of balance here. Um, The substance is very addictive. Uh, I found that when I looked at individuals over time, if they were taking pain medication in uh, one year, they were taking it again the next year. They're going to have difficulty passing a drug test uh, to get a job. 
62.7% is the participation rate in this country. Alan, fold your work into that 62.7%. How much of that is the opioid crisis? Well, we're down from 66.7% over the last four years. So we're down about four percentage points. And looking at both men and women, uh, 20 to 25% of that drop looks like it could be attributed to the proliferation of opioid medication. The biggest killer of under 50s. That's what you've told me before. The the numbers are just shocking. Uh, Probably close to 50,000 people a year uh, are dying of overdoses. Uh, The Council of Economic Advisors made an estimate that the loss of life, the cost of the loss of life uh, due to the opioid epidemic is close to half a trillion dollars a year. Yeah. Alan, I can't say um, enough how many people I've seen who have read this research and commented on it positively, but that's not enough. Is this resonating with anyone in government? Has anyone picked up the phone and given you a call and tried to reach out to you about the research you've done? I have to say I've been disappointed that um, I have not been contacted uh, by the current administration on this work. The proposals that the Christie Commission came out with, I think, were mostly sensible. I haven't seen any follow-through by the administration, and I think it's important uh, that they follow up their words with actions. So what should the first action look like? What should the first step be, Alan? Give me a series of steps and a timeline to really address what is a crisis in this country. Well, you know, I think the easiest, and it's not very costly steps, are to get our hands around medical practices and to have restrictions on how many pills can be prescribed, to cross-check across different providers that uh, patients are not shopping around uh, when the supply is limited. Uh, I think we need to greatly increase the treatment centers uh, uh, to wean people off of uh, their addiction. Um, there, there are some other things that we can experiment with. Some countries have safe zones. This is something that Admiral Winnefeld, in a really moving article in the latest issue of The Atlantic, yes, stunning, wrote. Stunning. Um, and, uh, you know, I think <clears throat> there are lots of things that we, we should explore, and there's some things where I think we have pretty good evidence that they work. Help with this administration. Clearly, you served under President Obama, and I think most of our people would think you're just to the right of, you know, Lenin or, or you know, name your name your commie. I mean, that's the tone that you get out of Kruger economics. And you and I know that's not the reality. How can Kevin Hassett, how can David Malpass take this administration to a better outcome for all Americans two years out with two terms, six years out? What do the economists need to do to, to make for a better Trump economics? Well, I think they got off on the wrong foot because the whole economics team, I think, lost credibility the way that they talk about the economy, the way that they misrepresented the current tax cut. But that aside, um, the type of report that Kevin Hassett's Council of Economic Advisors put out, I think, was a good step. Uh, I think they're planning to do uh, more work in this area. I think that will be helpful. But frankly, I think it's uh, not up to the economists here. I think it's up to the agencies like HHS and the Department of Labor uh, to have concrete plans. Um, It's up to uh, Mick Mulvaney to step up and uh, to see this as partly a budget issue. Um, We can't just say uh, we don't have any money left because we make choices and we're making choices now uh, to reduce revenue. So that's a choice. Professor Kruger, the response to your critics would be that in Reagan years, we had 30, 40 percent debt to GDP. And now it's 100, you know, whatever the working numbers are. It's not 1986, is it? 
Uh, that's that, that's absolutely right. But if you look at the human cost, you look at the economic cost of this epidemic, this is going to be money that's very well spent, and it's not money okay. that's going to add in any meaningful way to the deficit. I mean, let's talk about the dead load. The debt load's in the trillions. What kind of numbers are we talking about that would need to be put together to address this issue, Alan? A hundred billion? Tens of billions? What kind of numbers are you talking about? I think you're probably talking about tens of billions of dollars. Is any realistic government response that could be managed. And, 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 and of course, it's not only the federal government, it's also the state governments and local governments. Do you feel that this has become a left-right issue, a Democrat-Republican issue, or is there an audience there in D.C. that says, actually, it's for all of us to act? I think this is an American issue. And... Um, uh, the opioid epidemic, it's widespread. It's not just hitting the Rust Belt. You look at the map, it's not just uh, the Rust Belt. Of course, West Virginia is hit extremely hard, but so is Western Nevada. So uh, I think this is a problem that cuts across different groups, it cuts across America, and I think our, our, our government has failed us in terms of responding given the scope of the crisis. But a sequence of governments has failed this country, Alan. The previous government failed this country in terms of addressing this crisis. This crisis didn't just arise in 2017 with President Donald Trump. It seems like the previous government didn't do enough either. Why have a sequence of governments failed to address this issue? Well, I think it took a while to recognize the scope of the problem. Uh, our economic or, and, and health indicators lag too much. Uh, but also, if you look at the previous administration, the amount of opioids being prescribed have declined uh, every year from 2010 to 2015, which is the latest year for which we have data. So I think it's a bit unfair to say the previous administration uh, didn't, didn't act and it was starting to get some results. Uh, but I think we do need to respond much more vigorously. Professor Alan Kruger, Princeton University economics professor, just some phenomenal work. And Alan, as always, I get to do the juvenile stuff with you as we count down to payrolls 34 minutes away. What are you looking for from the jobs report, Alan? Well, number one, I'm going to look to see if there's a bounce back in labor force. Last month, labor force participation rate fell by four-tenths of a percentage point. There were a million more people not participating in the labor force uh, last month than the month before. I suspect some of that is a statistical blip, so that'll be important to look at. Then, of course, you'll look at the top line, uh, the, the payroll jobs number, unemployment rate, wage growth. The top line, Tom, set to print near close to... 200K yeah, once again. And what's interesting, quickly here, uh, Professor Kruger, the run rate we're hearing from economists, the appropriate rate, it's almost now under 100,000. I mean, we're, these are phenomenal numbers given the other dynamics of the economy, isn't it? Well, job growth has slowed, you know, over the last uh, year. Yeah. It, it, it has slowed. And I think we're probably seeing it edging down towards 100,000, uh, assuming that the economy continues uh, to expand the way it has been. And that's enough for the unemployment rate to be stable. Okay, let's leave it there. Alan Kruger, thank you so much. It's Jobs Day with Princeton University and uh, much to talk about. Again, we'll try to get out on Twitter and the News Crush here. Jim Glassman with us right now. John Farrell. Jim Glassman, of course, J.P. Morgan Chase's commercial banking head economist. Jim, the story, 195, the median estimate. Can we carry on printing 200K after 200K after 200K? I think so, but right, right now we still have some catch-up to do from cleanup from the hurricane, so I wouldn't be surprised if we have a little bit above that this time. But honestly, uh, the, if the economy is approaching full employment, we would expect that the trend in job growth is going to be slowing down some, somewhere between 75,000 and 125,000 a month. That's what the working age population, that's how fast the working age population is growing. So 
I don't think we're going to see these kinds of numbers. My guess is in the coming year, we're going to see this gradual deceleration. Jim, in 11 minutes' time, this jobs report's going to drop. People will jump on the headline number 195. They'll spend a split second to see if it beat or miss. Then they'll work their way down, and they're going to zoom in on wage growth. Month on month, the estimate's 0.3. The previous month, just zero. Year on year, the estimate's 2.7. The previous month, 2.4. Are we going to see any kind of improvement around these numbers in the months to come? I think so, and I don't know why we wouldn't be seeing it. I, my, my guess is we're going to see this thing working its way toward the 3% level because everywhere you look, people have a hard time finding, and, they're, and they claim they're having to pay up to get people. So you would think that would start showing up in these trends. Jim Glassman, the arch failure, someone suggests, of central banks is they're trying to they're, uh, solve social issues. Are they way behind? If you look at the part of America that's employed in dynamic doing so well, Neil Dutta over at Macro uh, Renaissance Advisors mentions that NFIB numbers are so buoyant. Is the Fed farther behind than we think they are? You know, I think the country may be. The, 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 the best thing the central banks can do is support, uh, get, get the economy moving back to full employment. They don't, the tools they have really can't solve a lot of these social issues, but the thing they can do and the thing we ask them to do is to encourage, when the economy stumbles, help get back yeah. to full employment by keeping interest rates low. So I think that that is, that is about the best you can do if you're a central bank. The rest of it really has to come through other kinds right. of actions, and hopefully as the economy stays at full employment, we're going to see more of the wealth spread in, inward into some of the rural communities. The math of, of the labor economy centers around the labor force. What is the labor force, and what's it look like early December 2017? It's slowed down dramatically. So, and then the reason is because it's something we've known about for good 70 years, right? The baby boom generation is retiring. And so you've got 20 million people over the last 10 years who are moving into retirement age. So that's why the labor force has slowed down so much. And the only way you can offset that is if we had more immigration, which doesn't seem real likely right now. Jim, we had a fascinating conversation about 15, 20 minutes ago about the participation rate, the participation rate in the opioid crisis with Alan Kruger of Princeton University. As you look at that number, 62.7%, what does that rate mean to you? What's the explanation behind it? Well, there are two things going on, right? One is the demographics. As people start moving to retirement, that participation rate drops dramatically. And the, and, that, and the Fed thinks that that is the dominant driver in why the labor force participation rate come, has come down. The problem is there's also some cyclical character to that, which is when the economy was poor, doing poorly and people couldn't find jobs, they gave up and they drop out. That's really a story about the young people. That's beginning to reverse. But, you know, and there's a little bit more to go, but I think the dominant driver of why the labor force participation rates come down is because the, the working age population has been aging, and it's not being offset by an acceleration in immigration, which in the past was often the, the offset to demographics. This is why we in the U.S. are not used to talking about demographics, because yeah. our economy is relatively open. So when we're strong and there's a need for jobs, you tend to see people pouring in. The payrolls report seven minutes away. We're catching up with James Glassman of J.P. Morgan Chase. James, just to wrap things up, the one thing you're looking for in seven minutes' time. I'm looking for uh, 
Ongoing gains in, in payrolls. I, I think that's the main story for me. Wages, I assume, are going to catch up to the reality, and we're going to see better mm-hmm. trends there. But honestly, I think I've seen enough from the jobless claims trend. It's pretty good. We're we're humming along pretty well. And oh. I think that makes the case for the Fed next week. We did unit la- unit labor costs and productivity a few days ago. That did that give you pause? Not really. You know what, Tom? The, the productivity numbers are so volatile. They're all based on yeah. what they come from the GDP. Yeah. So honestly, I care about that story over a 10-year period, but the short-term swings yeah. are as good as the productivity numbers are as good as the GDP estimates, and they're very volatile. Okay. Well, Jim Glassman uh, with us this morning with J.P. Morgan. Maybe we'll touch with him after the jobless, after the numbers come out. And then Bill Gross will join us from Janice Henderson as well. We're thrilled to have Dr. Glassman, Mr. Gross with us. And now joining us on Bloomberg Radio on Bloomberg Television Worldwide, we're thrilled to bring you William Gross of Janice Henderson. He has a modest interest in the bond market and, of course, in the nation's economy in this jobs report as well. Bill Gross, let me begin this report by partitioning good job numbers way above what potential GDP would suggest, big 200,000 numbers, but wage growth just isn't there. Do you have a why why we're not seeing better wage growth in America? Well, I think there's some uh, hidden labor out there. You know, the participation rate is uh, down significantly from where it was uh, you know, four, five, six years ago. And so that's part of the answer. Um, the, the other part has to do with continued globalization, uh, technology, which uh, displaces labor and keeps the price of labor down relative to uh, robotization, et cetera. So there are a number of structural forces, I think, that uh, that keep uh, wages down, and that will probably keep wages down. It doesn't fit with the Fed's model. The Fed's model is uh, cyclically based and has no consideration, in my opinion, of any structural factors. And so that's that's your real question well, to me. And I suppose my answer is structural as opposed to cyclical numbers. Then, Bill, between the cyclical, the ebb and the flow of the market folks and the structural longer, deeper issues, let's go to your criticism of this Fed. Can you take Fed policy in the distortions in the Bill Gross world of fixed income? Can you bring them over to labor dynamics? Did those decisions and the oddities in fixed income, do they affect job growth? I think they do. I'm not so sure that the Fed factors it in, and, and perhaps they're making the right decisions for the wrong reasons, uh, in my opinion. I do think uh, that they're raising interest rates gradually. I do think it was a good decision to stop quantitative easing and now to minorly reduce the balance sheet, uh, although it doesn't make much of a difference. And so I, I think the gradual increase of rates uh, to perhaps as high as 2% nominally, that's another you know, 50 or 75 to go, yeah. um, you know, it's probably the right decision. But the, the real benchmark for the Fed, to my way of thinking, uh, as aside from, from wages, is really uh, the neutral Fed funds rate, the neutral real Fed funds rate. And I think uh, if inflation stays at uh, under 2%, uh, yeah. the Fed will stay at under 2%. Bill, Jonathan here, twos, tens at 57 Jonathan. basis points. Is there anything in this data or any data elsewhere in the United States that is going to change the direction of where this yield curve is going? 
Well, I think so to, uh, to the extent that quantitative easing in other countries, and this is a way off, Jonathan. You know, it's a few months off for uh, the ECB, and we don't know to the extent that they're going to cut it back. I don't think the BOJ will ever uh, you know, cut back their quantitative easing. They just have to keep going until the road ends. But uh, to the extent that quantitative easing has bought fives and tens and lowered their 10-year uh, levels to artificial levels, certainly, uh, then U.S. Treasuries are artificially low on the 10-year side, and it produces a flat yield curve. I think the important consideration, again, is where short rates are. Uh, when curves have flattened in the past, over the past uh, three, four, or five recessions that uh, a flat yield curve indicates, it's really been you know, a Fed that's tightened significantly and tightened perhaps too much, certainly in 2005, to produce the Great Recession. And so um, I, I'd watch short rates. I, I think 2% at the moment is, is the goal and where they should stop until uh, we get some inflation and until we get some wage growth. That might be what they should do, Bill, but it probably isn't what they're going to do. Um, so as an investor, as you put money to work through next year, how are you positioning on the yield curve? Well, I, I, I think actually there will be, and, and my, my position on the yield curve is that rates don't change much. I've talked on this program with you and Tom, you know, about 240, 245 on the 10-year being yeah. a very significant benchmark. Um, that's not been broken yet. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be broken today, uh, but it would be broken if, uh, mm -hmm. yes, wages increase at a faster pace than 2.4%. If we got 2.8, and we got inflation, you know, closer to 3, then certainly... Uh, the 10-year goes up, right. but I, I don't see that yet, and we don't see that today. Bill Gross, the analysis, the questioning of our new chairman, Jerome Powell, has been one of not a three-deviation shock, not a four-standard deviation shock. When you look at the mix of fixed income now, the distortions, a negative zero, two-year zero in Italy, where Swiss yields are, just as one example of the oddities of the Bill Gross world, do you need to tell Chairman Powell that the real risk here is instabilities and outright jump conditions as we try to get into quantitative tightening? Well, that's the Minsky uh, proposition, and I'm a devotee of uh, Minsky, and so I, I would agree with you to some extent, Tom. I would also say that it's a, a little bit different these days. Uh, bank regulation, uh, despite now going the other way, has uh, tightened things up and we're in better shape. But there are negatives to this uh, low interest rate world. I've talked about it for several yes. years. Um, you know, it affects savers, not just institutions in terms of pension funds and insurance companies, but small savers. And ultimately, the savings liability, which is enormous going forward, for small savers, in, I'm talking about education, I'm talking about retirement, you know, to the extent that interest rates stay low, they can't meet their objectives, and so things start to happen. They happen gradually, they happen slowly. I think they're currently happening slowly, but the Fed probably doesn't recognize it. But at some point, they have to renormalize, and the question becomes, what's the rate that renormalizes? I think it's closer to two than where we well. are now. What's so critical here, Bill, and I, I guess it goes to a Minsky moment, is in this great unwinding, in this great unraveling, there's still financial repression. We've got a tax act, which is clearly a donor class act. Will that extend, will that prolong our financial repression? Well, I think there's elements uh, that, that probably will, but of course it depends upon the central bank's reaction to it. Uh, you know, to the extent that taxes and the brunt of it is 
basically a lower corporate tax rate and a deficit of uh, $1 trillion plus dollars over the next uh, five to 10 years, then ultimately that leads to higher inflation and that leads to higher nominal GDP growth. To the extent that the Fed follows that up, then I suppose you know, savers are benefited, but it still doesn't benefit it from the standpoint of real interest rates because it's real interest rates that adds to their uh, kitty, so to speak, yeah. in terms of retirement and savings. So I, I think financial repression has been with us. It was with us for 40 years since World War II till the, the Volcker era, and I think it will continue for another 5, 10, 15 years. They're the ones, savers are the ones that are paying the price. Bloomberg Television, thanks for being with us today as well here with Bill Gross of uh, Janice Henderson as well. We're going to go to our John Farrell market open on television, of course, with Bloomberg Surveillance, here with Gary Cohn, the National Economic Council Director. For the Trump administration's views on the jobs report, I'm pleased to say we're now joined on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio from the White House by Gary Cohn, National Economic Council Director. Gary, decent jobs numbers once again. I think the obsession on the street at the moment, not the jobs report, but the tax bill that's going to go through Congress. You said to me only about a month ago that the 20% corporate tax rate was a red line. It doesn't look like a red line now. The president suggested it could go to 22. Is it still a red line? Well, Jonathan, thanks for, for having me. Here, here, here's what we know. We know that we passed two bills, one in the House, one in the Senate. They both had a 20% corporate tax rate in them. We know we're in conference right now, and the conference between the House and the Senate, they're supposed to conference the differences between the two bills. That's what we know. It sounds like we're at 20%. So what's the message that you're giving to them, though, Gary? Are you saying that 20% is negotiable now because the president's suggesting it is? Look, John Lee, we're, we're, we're in the process where we've taken two bills, one by the House, one by the Senate. They've both written their independent bills, and we're trying to bring them together into one bill that will be re-voted on by both the House and the Senate. The committees need to agree on what that final bill is going to look like and what exactly is in there. What they're supposed to do is take their differences and merge them together and agree on the differences. That's the process that's going on. A lot of that is going to happen this weekend. Hopefully, by the time we get back to work on Monday or you get back to work on Monday, we're working all weekend. Hey, Gary, I'll work all weekend, too. You know that. Come oh, on. Good. Good. I know that. I know that. Um, we'll, we'll have a pretty final tax bill here, and we'll know, we'll know where we're going to be. There are a couple moving parts up in the air, and, and we've got to get to agreement between both chambers, and we've got to deliver votes in both chambers. And, you know, there's a lot of progress being made. Gary, I know you're going to get super frustrated with me, but you still haven't answered the question. Is 20% a red line for the White House? Look, the president talked about 20%. The both bills have 20% in them. That's where we are. That's where the bills are. That's, what, that's what's in the conference committee, 20% in both bills. Okay, there's a conversation at the moment about expanding the $10,000 property deduction cap to include state income tax deductions. Um, it's said to be on the table. Uh, does the White House support that, Gary? What I think is on the table is, is the House is concerned about their SALT members. There's about 70 SALT state members in the House. We are very concerned about them. No one really wants tax increases here. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, look, 
maybe we should expand the $10,000 deduction not to just include real estate taxes, but to also include income taxes. The White House is fine with that. If that's where the conferences go and the conference committee goes, we're fine to support that. Would you say increasing the corporate rates to accommodate those kind of moves uh, is something you'd welcome? Look, we're, the conferences are working this out among themselves to come up with a bill that can get support in both the House and the Senate. We've told you that the whole time, that the White House is, is involved and we're quite actively involved. But ultimately, the tax bill is written by the House and the Senate, and we've got to get it voted on by both chambers. Well, Gary, something that popped up in the last week or so, and it moved markets to a certain extent, was people finding out that the, um, the AMT rate was still in there. Um, would you like to see that repealed? Yeah, look, that's, that's one of the areas where there's a difference between the two bills. Um, there, that's one of the issues where the conferences are working because there is a difference. We would love to get rid of the AMT rate uh, because we don't want people to do their taxes twice and pay the higher of. We're, one of our core principles was to simplify the tax system. AMT makes the, the system much more complicated. So yes, we would love to have a simple system where people can do their taxes, as the president said, on a, on a postcard or a simple sheet of paper. AMT does complicate the system. Gary, let's talk about the jobs report, shall we? The average yes. jobs report coming in at around 200K today, 228. We've got used to this, but wage growth is still disappointing. You have said before that it's this administration driving some of the payrolls gains. Do you also accept responsibility for the wage growth story as well that isn't improving in the way people want it to? We do. We do. We accept that. And that's why we need tax reform. We've been saying this consistently, that, the, that we need tax reform. We need to allow workers in this country to, A, keep more of what they earn, but more importantly, we need to be able to, to drive more wages to our hardworking citizens of this country. And we very firmly believe that tax reform will drive to wage growth. You've seen reports out from the CEA and other people that we believe this tax reform plan will drive real, real wage growth in this country. Hey, Gary, I love having you in the position you're in because you really understand financial markets as well. So I can talk to you about what's happening with a 2s 10 spread in Treasuries. We're south of 60 basis points. For some people, yep. that's the market casting a vote against your administration and saying, we don't believe you're going to do this. What's your read on the bond market? Look, I, I think the bond market right now is, is, is a function of a lot of stability in the economy, growth in the economy, lack of wages, as you said, and lack of inflation in the system. Same thing we've been looking at for a, a, a relatively long period of time here. We want to break this trend of low wages in the system. And we're confident that we can do that. So, Gary, as we move away from tax cuts and tax overhaul, once that's completed, do you think we can get infrastructure spending back on the table again? Is that something you want to drive? Yes, absolutely. As we, as we get into the new year, you know, there's going to be two major initiatives being driven. It's going to be welfare reform and infrastructure. We'll be working on them both together. Our infrastructure plan is, is, is quite intricate and quite expansive. The president is really behind the infrastructure plan and is spending a lot of time with us right now to go through the plan and, and, and really understand it. And he's driving us quite aggressively to get out there with a, an aggressive infrastructure plan. Hey, Gary, I hate to ask for a timeline because if we experienced throughout this year, that timeline for taxes just sort of drifted through 2017. But for you, when do you think that can be accomplished next year? 
Look, we're going to start right after the first of the year on infrastructure and as, as quickly as we can get it through the process. Infrastructure tends to be a slower process. There's about six or seven committees in the House that have jurisdiction over infrastructure. But the thing that we can do that will have the most impact, and we do control a lot of this, is the approval processes. We need to speed up the approval process for infrastructure. There is money in the system to build infrastructure. We need to get the approvals uh, sped up so that money can be spent. Hey, Gary, guess what I'm going to ask you next about markets? Bitcoin. Is the White House watching <laughs> what's happening with Bitcoin? And what are you thinking right now, Gary? Is this a serious risk? Is it something you're worried about? We're, we're watching it. Of course, we're watching it. Um, right now, we don't think it's a serious risk, but, we're, but clearly we're, we're watching. Is it something you want to act on, though, Gary? The IRS, is it something that they should be looking at? Is it something you think needs to be regulated? Well, as, as you know, I think that uh, you know, the, the CFTC has approved a couple futures contracts. We'll see what effect that has. It will allow people the ability to short it. There's never been a, 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 a transparent market uh, in Bitcoin. We'll see what goes on here. It's an evolving market. We've, we've watched this happen before as markets have evolved. Hey, Gary, thank you very much. Gary Cohn, White House National Economic Council Director, joining us from... John Farrow of Bloomberg Surveillance in the open on Bloomberg Television. That was, I thought, an uh, interview of great velocity. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.